you so much for being in worship today. <clears throat> and again, if you're joining us online, we, we thank you for joining us as well. Today we are continuing our series on developing a faith for all seasons. And we've talked about how it is easy to follow God and trust in God when things are going well. And how can we develop a faith that when things are not going well, we're still able to say, God, I trust you. And I believe you. And as we've talked about in this series, our guide is a man named Abraham. Uh, Abraham is the patriarch of the Jewish people, the father uh, of the nation of Israel. And we started this series by looking at the call of Abraham. Abraham lived in a place and God said, I want you to leave that land that's familiar to you. I want you to leave your extended family, the people that are familiar to you, and I want you to go to this place that I will show you. In fact, I want you to start walking, and I will show you where it is that you are to go. And Abraham demonstrated this incredible faith, not even knowing where it was. He said, God, I trust you so much that if you say go, I'll go. Even into the unknown, God, I will go where you tell me to go. But then we saw how Abraham got to Canaan, the land that God had for him. And when he got there, there was a famine in the land and there were enemies in the land. And this great faith that he had in the previous chapter suddenly was trumped by the fears of what would happen. His circumstances caused fears to rise up in his heart and in his mind. And he made decisions based on fear rather than faith. And the decision that we looked at was Abraham left Canaan to go to Egypt, which was mistake number one. God said, go to Canaan, and he goes to Egypt. God never said, go to Egypt. He said, go to Canaan. But out of fear, Abraham left and he went to Egypt. And that was bad enough. But then on the way to Egypt, he concocts this lie and he convinces his wife, Sarah, to buy into this lie. And the lie was, when we get to Egypt, tell everyone that you're my sister, not my wife. Because I'm scared that if they find out you're my wife, they will kill me to take you. So instead of saying you're my wife, which is the truth, tell them you're my sister. And they get to Egypt, and his sin just blows up in his face. He never counted on the fact that the Pharaoh of Egypt, this powerful man, would spot Sarah and he would take Sarah to be part of his harem, to be his wife. Suddenly, Abraham has his wife marrying another man. Now, it was not uncommon in that day for men to have multiple wives. It was not the way that God designed it in the beginning, but because of a number of reasons, this became an accepted practice in that day. However, it was not an accepted practice for a woman to have multiple husbands. And if you're thinking, well, way to go, Sarah, you and your liberated self, you show those husbands what it's like, you give those men a taste of their own medicine, you go just get yourself a couple of husbands. If that's what you're thinking, understand this. That's not what Sarah was thinking at all. It's not what Abraham was thinking. No one was thinking that. This lie that Abraham had crafted was a major sin. And while all sin is sin, there are certain sins that create more disastrous consequences. Driving 45 in a 40-mile-per-hour zone is illegal, 
but it's not as illegal as driving 150 in a 40 mile per hour zone and on the wrong side of the road. There are bigger consequences to that act. That's the same thing here in the life of Abraham. This was a major sin with major consequences and suddenly Abraham finds himself face down in the dirt. This snapshot of Abraham's life is one that most of us in this room have faced and I would say virtually all of us will face at some point. If you follow Christ for more than about five minutes, you will have these times in your life where you make the really big, bad decision, and you end up experiencing the consequences. You'll have those times where your fears trump your faith in God, and your decisions are made out of fear rather than faith, and you find yourself face down in the dirt after experiencing the consequences of that choice or those choices. When that happens, there are generally two responses to spiritual failure that I have had in my own life and in counseling other people that I have observed in the life of others. The first reaction is this. That is to say, this is just who I am. I blew it, therefore God can never use me again. I sinned and it was big time and God is now mad at me and God will no longer bless me. Or people will laugh at me if I try to now live for Christ after everything that I have done. That is reaction number one to spiritual failure. Reaction number two is to say, hey, I've learned from this. Yeah, I blew it, but I won't make that mistake again. Yeah, I, I blew it, but now I know that I can trust God because I saw how my lack of faith really took me down this path. Or, or yeah, I now I get the foolishness of trusting in my own wisdom rather than in the wisdom of God. And in, and in my experience, when people have major failures, they will either continue in their rebellion against God and just resign themselves to the fact that, hey, this is who I am, or they will learn from that failure. And they will allow God to let, they will let God use that experience to then grow their faith. This is the crossroad where Abraham finds himself that we will see today. Abraham is at this place where he could say, you know what? I blew it. I, I, so, I sold my wife off to another man to protect my own life. I mean, I have blown it. And Abraham at that point could have said, well, I'm just giving up. I'm giving up on this promise of God to make me into a great nation that will bless all the nations of the world. I'm just giving up on this promise. Or he could say, I'm going to learn from this. I'm going to learn from this experience, and I will now follow God out of faith rather than out of fear. And this morning, here's what we're going to see. Abraham chooses door number two. He takes that latter path. He lets God use this experience in his life to grow his faith. And I think in this, what we see is a life lesson for all of us in this room. There will be times that we blow it. For all of us, there will be times that fear trumps our faith and we make really bad decision, decisions. And here's what you need to know. You are never, ever beyond the grace of God. And you are never beyond God being able to use you to do great things for his kingdom. I don't care how much you've blown it. 
I don't care how far down the path of sin you have gone, God still wants to use you if you are a follower of Christ. This is a theme that we see running all throughout the Bible. One of the places you see it the clearest is in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 is called the Hall of Fame of Faith. Think about what we refer to when we say a Hall of Fame. So if you go to uh, Cooperstown, New York, you can go to the Baseball Hall of Fame. And if you go into the Baseball Hall of Fame, you will see a list of all the greats who have played baseball. Ty Cobb, Cy Young, Babe Ruth, Joe DiMaggio, Jackie Robinson, Greg Maddox, Tom Glavin, all of those names are listed at the Baseball Hall of Fame. Or you can go to Canton, Ohio to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And you'll see all kinds of names there. Troy Aikman, Terry Bradshaw, Tony Dorsett, Peyton Manning. You go to the Football Hall of Fame, they say these are the greatest to play the game. Go to Springfield, Massachusetts to the Pro Basketball Hall of Fame. Charles Barkley, Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Larry Bird, Kobe Bryant. These are the greats. These are the guys who really excelled at basketball. You go to Hebrews chapter 11, and the writer says, these are the greats. They exhibited incredible faith in God, and God used them to do great things for his kingdom. So when you go to Hebrews chapter 11, you'll see names like Noah. And the writer says, By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. Noah showed incredible faith in God. God, I will follow you. I will build this ark just like you commanded. But one of the things we forget is Noah was also a drunkard. And Noah failed God, and yet God still used him. We see names like Jacob. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshiped as he leaned on the top of his staff. Joseph had, I mean, Jacob had incredible faith in God. Yet Jacob was also a liar. He was a deceiver. He failed miserably, and yet God still used him. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as a son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Moses showed great faith. He could have stayed in Pharaoh's household in a very comfortable place, yet he chose to reject that to reject the fleeting pleasures of sin, to follow God and to lead God's people out of Egypt. But Moses, before all of this, committed murder. Moses was a murderer, and yet God used him to do great things. Here's a go, and by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Rahab showed incredible faith in God. An incredible faith that God would deliver the Israelites, the city, into the Israelites' hands. And yet, Rahab was a, it's right there, prostitute. And yet, God used her for great things. And what more shall we say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets. Samuel had great faith. I mean, Samson had great faith and was used by God. He also had a weakness for women, big time. And that was his ultimate downfall. 
And we all know about David, King David, this man of great faith who was called a man after God's own heart, yet he committed murder and adultery. But God still used him. Throughout the Bible, this theme pops up again and again and again, that God takes our failures, God takes our sins, and he uses those to grow our faith in him if we allow him to do that. Now, do not consider that to be an excuse for sin. Do not say, well, if God uses that as a faith builder, I'm going to dive headfirst into sin and let God really build my faith. If you do that like Abraham and like these other individuals, you will suffer. However, when we do fail, God can use those times to grow our faith so that we will not fail in the future. And again, that's exactly what we see in the passage for today. If you've got a Bible with you, turn to Genesis 14. This is on your message map. It will also be on the screen behind me. And just to set this passage up, last week we saw where Abraham and his nephew Lot um, had to separate because they had both become very wealthy, especially Abraham, and wealth in that day was measured by servants and livestock. And they were together, and the land simply could not sustain all of the people and all the animals of both of their households. And so they separated, and Lot foolishly chose to go and live next door to Sodom, this wicked city. It was a huge mistake for Lot to go and to live next to Sodom, and he would experience disastrous consequences for that decision. Abraham went and lived in a place called Hebron, Hebron's located about 25 miles to the south of where Jerusalem is today. And in Genesis 14, here's what we see. The narrative shifts off of Abraham and Lot, and it turns to these city-states or a coalition of city-states located to the east of present-day Israel. Um, these city-states were in what is modern-day Iraq, and it was several very powerful nations and there was one king in particular who led this coalition of city-states. His name was Kedor Loamor. And if you've read the chapter for today, you know we shorten his name to King Kedo because his name is kind of hard to say. So King Kedo was in charge of these very powerful Western nations. There was also a coalition of nations in the east in modern-day Israel, or the land of Canaan, but they were not as strong as these, West, these eastern kingdoms. So the western kingdoms would pay tribute to these eastern kingdoms uh, to keep those eastern kingdoms happy. Well then, for some reason, Sodom and Gomorrah and these other western kingdoms decided to stop paying tribute. The eastern kingdoms became upset. King Kedo got mad. He wanted his money. They refuse to pay the money, so he mounts his armies, his forces together, and they march westward towards these kingdoms in the west, and they have this huge fight in the Jordan River Valley. If you've ever seen Braveheart, it's one of those kind of battles, or The Patriot, or any other Mel Gibson movie. It's one of these big battles, and the forces fight, but King Keto's forces are that powerful. And they go into this battle, and they win the battle, and then verse... Uh, verse 11, here's what happens next. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food. Then they went away. 
They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. So this invading army took captives, and since Lot had made the very foolish decision to live near Sodom, Lot and his family was taken captive by King Keto and his forces. Then this unnamed individual, some servant, goes and he finds Abraham, who's living in Hebron. And he tells Abraham what has happened. It was a battle. All those big, powerful kingdoms won. Sodom and Gomorrah were defeated. Oh, and by the way, Abraham, your nephew Lot was taken captive. And here's what happens next, verse 14. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born into his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. Now, notice here the text is very specific. Abram had 318 men born into his household. That meant these were individuals who were, who were sons of his servants going back to the time that God originally called Abraham. 318 men sounds like a lot, but essentially it was just a private militia to guard Abraham's family and to guard all of his livestock and his wealth. And 318 men is sufficient for a band of raiders or a band of thieves, but it is not if those 318 men are going up against four kingdoms and their armies. Meaning, the number 318 was given here to let the reader know that Abraham was way outnumbered by King Keto's forces. He was outmatched. This little private militia of 318 men going up against four armies, it was not a fair fight. And Abraham at this point easily could have said, look, I'm not going and fighting against these armies. And you know, Lot, he chose to live by Sodom. In fact, I said, whichever way you go, I'll go the opposite way. He chose to go and live by Sodom. He has made his bed. Now he must lie in it. Why would I go and rescue Lot and take the chance that we will get slaughtered by these forces? Except... Abraham knew, and this is so key, that God had called him to do this. And yeah, there were much bigger forces, but Abraham had the God of the universe on his side. And God was saying, go and fight, and I don't care if I'm outnumbered, I've got God on my side. And you can say the forces of King Keto are big and bad and powerful, but if you've got the God of the universe... My money is on the God of the universe every single time. And that's exactly how Abraham viewed it. Here we see that his faith had grown tremendously. Two weeks ago, he goes to Canaan and there's a famine and there's enemies in the land and fear trumps his faith and he makes these foolish decisions based on fear. But here, his faith has been renewed and he says, God, I will face anything as long as I know that you're on my side. This time he steps out in faith and God uses him to defeat these much bigger forces. Verse 17. 
After Abram returned from defeating King Keto and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Okay, so stop there. This is a, a strange part of the passage. It's, it's arguably the strangest episode in the life of Abraham. The first part of it makes sense. The king of Sodom comes out to greet Abraham. Abraham has just gone and defeated King Keto, something that Sodom was not able to do. And so he goes and he brings back all these possessions and all of these goods back to Sodom, back to the place where they had been stolen. So it makes sense for the king of Sodom to come out and say, hey, thank you, Abraham. Thank you for going and doing what we could not do. But then the story turns and includes this account of another king named Melchizedek, the king of Salem coming out to greet Abraham. This is the only time in Genesis that Melchizedek shows up, and it's the only reference to Melchizedek in the entire Old Testament, except for one brief mention in the Psalms that only refers to him as a priest, and that's it, and then it moves on. It's this strange account of a man who is both a king and a priest, which is not found anywhere else in the Old Testament, coming out and greeting Abraham. He was not just a king. He was the king of Salem as well. And most scholars agree that Salem was the ancient name for Jerusalem. In fact, the name Jerusalem has Salem in it, Jeru-Salem. And so here was this king of the city that would become the city of God, and he was also a priest, and he comes out and he blesses Abraham with this powerful blessing over his life for what he has done and his blessing for the future. And then in response, Abraham gives to Melchizedek a tenth of everything that he had acquired in the battle, a tithe or 10% of all of the plunder. And then after that experience, Melchizedek just virtually disappears from the pages of the Old Testament. And so you and I read this story, and we're sort of left scratching our heads. Well, what is this all about? This king Melchizedek coming out and greeting Abraham? Why, why does he pronounce a blessing over Abraham? Why in return does Abraham tithe to him? Who was this mysterious figure? What happened to him after this account? Why doesn't the writer of Genesis, Moses, why doesn't he give us more information here? Here's why. The people who first read this, they knew the legends about Melchizedek. The original readers of the story understood exactly who this mysterious figure was. And one of the ways we know that there were these strong legends... It's because of a discovery that happened in 1946 in Israel near the Dead Sea. There was this young boy who was playing near some caves, and he was running along, and he took a rock, and he threw the rock into one of the caves, and when he threw it into the cave, he heard the sound of pottery shattering. 
and he went in to investigate, and he found all of these large clay jars in this particular cave. And inside the jars were these ancient scrolls dating back to the time of Jesus. The scrolls became known as the Dead Sea Scrolls, and that find was arguably the greatest archaeological find of the last century. It, it proved the accuracy of the Old Testament that we have as these scrolls matched up perfectly with the Old Testament that has been passed down from generation to generation. But also included in these jars were scrolls not just verifying the Old Testament, but also there were other scrolls that talked about the history of Israel. There were scrolls that talked about the community life of this group called the Essenes that had written all these scrolls and lived in these caves. And also in one of those jars was a scroll called the Scroll of Melchizedek. And that scroll identified Melchizedek as this messianic figure. In other words, the Jews believed that this was not just a king who was also a priest who came out, but he was some sort of messianic figure. So by the time Jesus came along, those Jews who became followers of Christ understood exactly what was going on in Genesis chapter 14. That when Melchizedek came out to greet Abraham, that it was not just a king and priest, it was Jesus himself coming out to greet Abraham 2,000 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Somehow Abraham in this text understood that he was not meeting with just some ordinary king, but he was meeting with God in human form. And here's what's amazing. You ready for this? Abraham was meeting Jesus, who was a descendant of Abraham, born 2,000 years after Abraham, but who had existed long before Abraham ever was. I just blew your mind, right? That's, that's amazing. Now, you may be thinking, that, that sounds kind of far-fetched. I mean, I don't know. There's just these legends. I mean, how do we know that that's the case? When you turn over to the New Testament book of Hebrews, the name Melchizedek is mentioned in three chapters. The writer of Hebrews was Jewish, and he wrote the book of Hebrews for Jewish Christians living throughout the Roman Empire. And when you get to the seventh chapter of Hebrews, here's what the writer of Hebrews says about Melchizedek. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. So here the writer of Hebrews recounts what we just read in Genesis 14. But then he goes on to say this. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem means king of peace. Then he really makes it clear in verse 3. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Essentially, the writer of Hebrews understood, and he assumed that his Jewish readers understood as well that Melchizedek was actually Jesus. And so when Abraham comes out and he meets Jesus in human form, he gives him a tenth of everything that he had taken from this battle. This was Abraham's way of recognizing who had given him the victory and how he had acquired all of this wealth from going into battle. 
This was Abraham's way of saying, I recognize that all this belongs to you, God. So here's a tenth. It's all of yours anyway, but here is a portion of, of what you have given to me, I am giving back to you. This, this is one of the reasons that we talk about tithing. It is not a financial issue. It is a faith issue. It is saying to God, God, I recognize that everything I have comes from you. And so it is both a demonstration of faith, and then as God provides for us as we tithe, it is also a builder of our faith as well. And here we see Abraham, before, before the instructions of tithing were ever given, Abraham does this with Melchizedek. Okay, verse 21, last part of the passage. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. So this is all the stuff that Abraham had taken that had belonged to Sodom that he had rescued from King Keto. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, With raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me, to Anar, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. Okay, so last week, if you were with us, you know, we talked about Lot going and moving by Sodom and how that was a really bad decision, that attaching yourself to wickedness in any way will eventually blow up in your life. And that's what happened to Lot. He was taken captive. Everything blew up in his face. We saw Lot making the foolish decision to go and live near Sodom. Here we see Abraham making the very wise decision to put as much distance as possible between him and Sodom. Both physically, I'm not going to live right next door to Sodom, and relationally, the king of Sodom comes out and says, hey, you have rescued, you have taken back all of this stuff that King Keto stole from us. You gave a tenth of it to Melchizedek. Now here, you keep this portion, I'll keep another portion. Here's the stuff that belongs to me, but I'm giving it to you, Abraham. And Abraham says with raised hand, I want nothing from you. Not even a thread or the strap of a sandal. I don't even want a tiny little piece of leather from you. I want nothing that attaches my life to you so that you will be able to say that you made me rich. Abraham here displays this incredible wisdom to say if, if there's any attachment that anyone can say about me and Sodom, I'm going to, I'm going to dismiss that as much as I can. Okay, several things. If you read the chapter for today, this is at the end of the chapter. I want to highlight it for you here. This is on your message map. So several lessons for us. When you fail, number one, do not stay in your sin. When you blow it, when fear trumps your faith and you make some decision that, that is, has all these disastrous consequences, do not stay in that place. If you are a follower of Christ, God has called you to Canaan, don't go to Egypt. And if you go to Egypt, get out of Egypt and go back to Canaan. Don't get to the point where you say, well, this is just me. This is just who I am. I'm just a sinner, and I have blown it. I'm outside of God's grace. Do not stay in that, in that place. Pray to God for forgiveness. 
pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and then start running hard after God again. Number two, follow the Lord even when it's risky. In other words, don't stay on the sidelines of the Christian life. Abraham here does something that took a lot of faith, but in the end, he is rewarded for that faith. So often we sit back and we say, we'll just let others volunteer. We'll let others serve. I'll let others share their faith. I'll let others do the big, bold, risky thing. And we sit on the sidelines and we miss out on the blessings that God wants to pour out on us because we're scared and fear overwhelms us. And we say, no, I just, I just can't do that. And all the what ifs pop up in our mind and we say, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And God says, just do it. Just jump in. And I know it sounds risky, but if you will do this, I promise you that I am with you. Number three, obey what you know. Obey what you know. Here we see in this passage, Abraham somehow knew that God wanted him to give to Melchizedek. That this was something that God had said, hey, this is who you are. This is what I want you to do. And so often for us, we struggle with God's will. We say, God, I, I just need to know what it is you want me to do. Which college do you want me to go to? God, I can't decide. What's your will for my life? God, do you want me to take this job or, or this other job? God, this, this promotion's been offered to me. Do I take it or do I, do I not? Do I wait on something else? Or God, I'm, I'm dating this person. It's getting kind of serious. It's a big commitment. Do I pop the question or what if he pops the question? I don't know. God, what's your will? Do we keep dating? Do we break up? And we struggle and struggle and we pray and we ask God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? And the whole time we're not obeying the things that we know, the things that are so clear in Scripture. And here's what I can tell you from my own personal experience. The more faithful we are in obeying what God has clearly said in the Scripture that we are to do, the easier it is to hear from God about all those other issues. So if you're struggling with God's will right now in your life, here's something you can do today. And that is obey what you know. Stay faithful to the word of God. And I promise you, I promise you that God will reveal his will to you. Number four, flee temptation. Like Abraham, resist the temptation to hitch your life to wickedness. When we hang around Sodom, it will just blow up in our lives. Do whatever you can, like Abraham, to keep as much distance as you can between you and evil. Put up guardrails in your life, protections, filters, accountability, whatever it is that you can put up to keep temptation away from your life. It is, it is easy. It is easier to stay away from sin if you're not living in Sodom. If you're right in the middle of Sodom, it's harder to avoid it. So flee temptation. Stay as far away from it as you can. And then finally, here's the last thing. Accept God's grace. And this is what I want to really emphasize. Accept God's grace. You are never beyond the grace of God. If you follow Christ, you are forgiven for every sin you have ever committed. Past, present, and future sin. You are never, ever beyond the grace of God or being used by God to do great things for his kingdom. 
We sang it earlier. Our sins are many. His mercy is more. We are able to sing that honestly and faithfully because we see it so clearly in the Bible that we are never, ever beyond the grace of God. And God is a God of great mercy. So if you've blown it, if you've sinned last month, last week, last night, this morning, if you've really blown it, understand this, that God is a God of incredible grace. And you, as a follower of Christ, are forgiven for that sin. Now, let God use that experience to grow your faith in Him so that you may follow Him more faithfully from here on out.